Today I'm continuing our series called Fully Alive. And I think the truth is, if we're not careful, we can go through this life in survival mode, just bumbling along the bottom, or even partially alive. And I just think the Lord has more for us. I think it's a, it's a challenge this evening. What does it look like to be fully alive? And in Habakkuk 2 verse 4 in the message, it says this. Look at that man bloated by self-importance, full of himself but soul empty. But the person in right standing before God through loyal and steady believing is fully alive, really alive. Back in the second century, a famous early church father named Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a person fully alive. That's what God's glory looks like. So over the next three weeks, I'm going to be looking at emotionally alive, spiritually alive, and relationally alive. And we're going to find out that these areas of our life are not just like grapefruit, where you separate each one. Okay, we have an emotional box, we have a spiritual box, we have a physical box, we have a relational box. But instead, and I talked about this last week, it's a bit more like a chocolate milkshake. It's all mixed together. And they're all related to one another. Last week, I spoke about setting personal goals that will motivate us to become more fully alive. I really just talked about how it's biblical to set goals rather than, you know, psychobabble or whatever. It's, it's actually a biblical concept. And so, um, really want to look at being emotionally alive this evening. So, emotional health and spiritual health are inseparable. When we love to separate them and even ironically, I was thinking about this, I've managed to separate them in my talks. So I've kind of failed before we've even begun, haven't we? I'm like, I'm going to do emotional and then I'm going to do spiritual. So yeah, I don't know what to say. But um, I realized as I was going through it, it's like, I've failed. But uh, never mind. John Wimber used to say, John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement of churches that we're a part of, used to say, I want to grow up before I grow old. And it's one of my favorite phrases. And really what he's talking about is I want to become mature in life. I don't want to just stay immature throughout this whole life. As I get older, I want to grow in maturity. Can you be spiritually mature without being emotionally mature? Pete Scazzaro answers this question very forcefully. He says, it is impossible to be spiritually mature whilst remaining emotionally immature. Pete Scazzaro has written a brilliant book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and just a massive encouragement to read that book. So what even is emotional maturity? It's the, this is the best def definition that I found. It's the ability to read, regulate and renew your emotions in the presence of God. Read, regulate and renew your emotions in the presence of God. One of the dangers of 21st century Christianity is that people want to pretend that they've got it all together. Do you know what? I'm all right. You know, we might have even come in this evening. Somebody's like, how are you? Do you know what? I'm great. Really? Are you really? <laughs> we love to put up a little veneer. And this is, somebody's called this the glittering image. And this is really the kind of public persona that we love to put up for everybody else. Never has it been more so true than now with the, um, the rise and rise of Facebook and just putting a complete distorted view of your life. I'm just going to put the best bits up. I've had a terrible day, but here's the, best, here's the best pictures of my day. And 
So Christians, I think, are especially prone to this idea of a glittering image because of the expectation to move into to growth and holiness. And sometimes we can end up just hiding vast sections of our life. And what that, what that eventually means is that we end up with fake churches because people aren't real. If people aren't authentic and real, then it's just fake. And so one of my greatest hearts for this church is you might have come in here this evening and your world's falling apart. That is absolutely all right. Each one of us, you know, throughout the course of our life, we are going to experience circumstances. You know, it could be so many relational breakdowns, something happens in our family, whatever. Some of you are traumatized by Christmas. You've been home to see your family. You're like, oh my goodness. Why did I go back to behaving like a 13-year-old? I really thought I'd changed and I'd grown. And then I go back into that environment. I'm, yes, I'll go up to my room. It's like, how did this happen? What happened to me? But why does, why does this even matter so much, talking about this idea of emotional maturity? Because emotional maturity is really like the foundations of our life. It's what secures you. And if you think about kind of the building of our life, you, you know, as an actual building, the foundations is what keeps the whole thing in place. And we all live with inevitable stress and pressure, expectations, frustrations, demands, disappointment. Do you know what? That's life. That's just life. And things take their toll. We take the hits of life. And to thrive and to grow, I believe that we need to learn to read our hearts, to regulate our responses and get renewed in God's presence. And that last bit's so important. This is not just about kind of emotional maturity out there. Do you know what? There are people in the world um, who don't have a faith who are actually very emotionally mature, but, the, but they don't have this final part. They haven't done it in the presence of their creator. And that is so massively important. Now, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro talks really about this idea of looking beneath the surface. And he uses the image of an iceberg. I love icebergs. They're so incredibly beautiful. But really, the, our, our lives are much like an iceberg. With an iceberg, you have 10% of it above the surface, and you have 90% of it that you cannot see. Well, the danger is we like to show people the 10% when actually there's all of this stuff underneath the surface. And so the challenge, really, when we're talking about emotionally being emotionally mature is to bring our uh, emotions to the surface in a healthy way, because if we bury them alive under the surface, what will happen is they are going to rise up. They're going to manifest themselves in another way, unhealthy ways. You know, these are some of them. Insomnia, depression, isolation, stress, alcoholism, um, medication. And just to say, medication is amazing in terms of, you know, I'm absolutely for medication. But sometimes, actually, it's the things that are beneath that are causing the problems. It's like, actually, it's the circumstances. There's things that are much deeper. And so what ends up happening is we try to medicate our way out of something that's actually happened much deeper. It's the stuff under the surface of the iceberg, and then suddenly we're trying to medicate our way out, and we haven't sorted out the problem. At the end of the day, immature emotions prevent us from loving well. And that's really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about loving God and loving one another. That's really the heartbeat of what the Bible's all about, loving God and loving one another well. As always, it's extremely helpful to look to Jesus, not only for our salvation, but as, as our model in life. 
And Jesus held the many different tensions because he had the ability to separate himself from the crowds and his family and his disciples. And his relationship with the Father freed him from the pressures around him. If you just stop and think for a moment about Jesus and the pressures on him, he would have had people coming to him. It's like, you've got to be over here. You've got to be doing this. Oh no, these people need you. Do you know what? Jesus knew exactly what he was called to do. He knew what his agenda was. How did he know that? Because he spent time with the Father. That's how he knew what he was called to do. Because he went back into, you know, he got up early in the morning and went off to be with the Father. That's how he knew what, it, what was on the agenda. And he didn't get distracted. He didn't let others set his agenda. But we can't miss the fact that the gospel writers record Jesus's raw emotions. Because I said, sometimes when we're even talking about emotions, some people are like, oh, I want to kind of distance myself. Do you know what? Emotion is good. I want to put that into the room. Emotion is good. And because we see it in Jesus, he's our model. And so just to show you some of this, Jesus in Luke 19, 41, shed tears. He shed tears. In Luke 10, 21, he was filled with joy. In Mark 14, 34, he was grieved. In Mark 3, verse 5, he was angry. Sometimes we think about anger. It's like, wow, how could you possibly feel anger? Do you know what? I know that many of you do feel anger deeply. We'll all feel anger at times. Sadness came over him, Matthew 26, 37. He felt compassion again and again throughout the scriptures it talks. And Jesus felt compassion. And Jesus felt compassion. He felt sorrow, John eleven thirty five. 35. He showed astonishment and wonder, Mark 6, 6 and Luke 7, 9. He felt distress, Mark 3, 5, Luke 12, 50. Can you see? Jesus wasn't scared of emotion. He was fully man and fully God, emotions and all. And a quote from the book, The Cry of the Soul, helps capture the danger of hiding our emotions. It says this, Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives our heart a voice. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. I think it's really interesting that it says there that we lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. Do you know what? In my experience of pastoring people over the last 15 years or whatever it is, so often it's in the valley of their life where people meet God most profoundly. It's when their life is literally falling apart that suddenly they have these profound moments with the Lord as they're on their knees, as they're crying out their Lord. They're like, God, meet me. God, I need you. It's in the valleys rather than the mountaintops. And we always think it's in the mountaintops. It's not. It's in those places an authentic relationship with Jesus takes us into the depth, it takes us into the shadows and into the deep parts of our souls. Do you know what? He wants to re restore us and redeem us. And he, make, he wants to make us all fully alive, not just the 10% that we can see above the surface. It's been said that we change our behavior when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. Do you know what? When we're talking about emotions, there is always something lying beneath the emotion that we're feeling. When, when it's rage and anger, how was I hurt? When it's frustration, what did I feel helpless about? 
When it's shame, what was I hiding? When it's resentment, what did I expect or hope for? When it's depression, what did I lose? When it's jealousy, where did I feel inadequate? Now, those aren't always the right questions, but they're a good starting point to begin to unearth what is it that's underneath. What, what is it? So I'm feeling this emotion. Why am I feeling this emotion? Our emotions are like the check engine light in our car. Seeing the light go on is not enough. We have to ask why. So to explore the iceberg is to look beneath the surface of our lives, to identify the hidden but powerful forces that shape the way that we make choices and how we conduct our relationships. By acknowledging and naming these realities, we raise our emotional awareness, which in turn enables us to process our emotions in a healthy way and to integrate them into our discernment of God's will. It's the two together, emotional health and contemplative spirituality, spending time in his presence that release great power to transform our lives, our families, our workplaces, our churches, and ultimately the world around us. You know, there are so many examples of this. Just to pick one, we could look at King David, the man described as a man after God's own heart. He models for us what this looks like. He's emotionally healthy, that it's, He's incredibly aware of what's going on inside him. As you read through the Psalms, and do you know what? I think this is a real challenge, over a day to read all of the Psalms. They're not that long. But what happens is, is when you do that, often we just take them in isolation. When you take that whole sweep, you begin to see the range of David's emotions and the different subjects that he covers. Um, we see him in the Psalms, we see him outraged, we see him suicidal, depressed, overjoyed, dancing. We, observing, we observe him, you know, with a whole gamut of emotions. He's broken and he's vulnerable before God and others. At the same time, so you've got this incredibly emotional man that's experiencing so much, but at the same time, we feel this passion for the Lord, this red hot heat for the Lord that he pants for God like a deer pants for water, for streams of living water. That's the image that we're given. He writes songs and he worships and he seeks God's face and he loves scripture. He's a man after God's own heart. But the, the degree to which we're willing to give Jesus access to what is deeply beneath the surface in our lives is the degree to which we will experience freedom in him. I'm gonna say that again because... I think it's so important. The degree to which we are willing to give Jesus access to what is deeply beneath the surface in our lives is the degree to which we will experience freedom in him. We love to talk about freedom. You know, this idea, you know, we come into church and we're going to experience freedom. Do you know what? Sometimes that happens. Sometimes in a moment, God will come in and he'll counter us and he'll break something off and he can break off a lie. Um, but actually, more often, it's the case that we spend time with the Lord and we begin to process what's going on. Do you know what? I think that you can do life with God on the go to a certain extent. It will take you so far. Sometimes people are like, do you know what? You don't really need to have a quiet time. You don't need those things. Do you know what? There's, there's an element of truth in that. So I think that you can do life with God on the go. Practicing the presence of God. God is all around. You can do it in the moment. But actually, sometimes you, you hit points in your life where you've got to delve deeper than that. And you've got to stop and you've got to sit there and go, what is it that is going on, Lord? I have no idea what is going on in my soul. That can only come about through spending time with the Lord. And some of you have walked in this, this evening and you're like, I can't even identify what it is that I'm feeling. You've got to spend some time with Jesus. 
There's no shortcut for it. If we don't learn to deal with our emotions in the presence of God, we are a risk to ourselves and to those that we love. So it's not only us. That, that's the thing. Sometimes people think it's, oh, it doesn't really matter if I deal with this stuff. Do you know what? It matters because of the families that you're a part of, the relationships that you're going to go into. It matters because of the people that you're going to do life with. It matters because of this room that you're sitting in, that we want to do relationships well. We want to do them brilliantly. And it's hard because we're all broken. <laughs> we're all a bit messed up. We've all got pain from the past. We've all got things going on, but we want to do this amazingly well. And therefore, we have to take ownership of this and say, do you know what? I want to grow in this. For some of us, do you know what? We're really driven. But why? What's the motivation? Why are you driven? What is it that's driving you? What's driving us can be so many different things. It can be an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. It could be competition. Perhaps it's the need to prove yourself or find acceptance. What, what is the drive? Or on the other hand of the scale, maybe you're disengaged from life and you're like, I have got no drive at all. You're paralyzed by perfectionism or fear of failure. Does your pain stop you taking risks? By not dealing with your stuff, you disengage from a genuine God moment and back off from a God adventure. Driven or disengaged, neither is healthy. So how do you respond when life pushes your buttons? Do you, do you suck it up like some emotional hoover or do you just shove it back into that feeling box? Do you know what? Our best option is to learn to read, regulate, and process our emotions with the Lord. So what does that actually look right? So to read, just to break this down, looks like taking a step back and just thinking, what, are, what is it that I'm feeling? What is going on? We need to read what's going on inside and allow ourselves to feel it rather than just pushing it down and suppressing it. Regulation means that we take a break to gain perspective, slow our pace, gain clarity and insight before we take our next step. Asking the why or what's going on question. Finding out the triggers and motivations behind emotions and actions. It's, it's uncomfortable to go to that next level of depth of why. Asking the why questions takes awareness to the level of analysis. What is behind this initial feeling or reaction is revealing the hidden parts, especially when it comes to emotions such as jealousy, hate, fear, or anger, all of those things. And then finally, renewing is about encountering God, bringing whatever is really going on inside to our Father, processing it before the Lord. If I never admit I'm not doing great today, then I won't look for the Father's love and healing. Do you know what? If we can't admit it to ourselves, what happens is, we then don't look for it from the Lord. We shut down to it. If I can't read loss, I won't receive his comfort. If I can't read weariness, I won't receive his rest. If I can't be real in God's presence, I won't receive his renewal. Our Heavenly Father wants the chance to coach us and father us. The Holy Spirit really is the best counsellor that we could ask for. To become more like Jesus and begin the process of spiritual and emotional maturity, a Christian must know their own heart, soul, and mind. Only then can we really worship God with all that we are. Do you know what? I've spent a long time making the case for emotional maturity. You're like, yeah, you really have. And do you know why I've, I've really kind of hammered the point? I've kind of done it on purpose. You might be like, really? Um, 
It's because so many Christian people are unwilling to take responsibility for the way that they respond to others and to God. They're not willing to. They're not willing to kind of own up to it. (laughs) They're not willing to take it on. They are ruled by their emotions, but they haven't realized it. They have intense feelings of anger, disappointment, pain, but they carry them around because they haven't actually stopped to recognize that's what it is. They haven't owned them and said, do you know what, I don't want to live like this anymore. It's not all right for me to live like this. One of my roles um, outside of the church is to oversee church planting for the vineyard in the UK and Ireland. So I deal with a lot of pastors leading churches and those that are going to lead churches. And a couple of years ago, the vineyard movement that we're a part of started heavily investing into pastors' emotional health. We really started to kind of make a sea change. Why? Because we were seeing pastors struggling to cope with the emotional demands of modern day ministry. Basically, they were feeling disappointment and anger and jealousy because they're human. But this was leading them to wanting to stop, to go just, I'm out, or even destructive behaviors. And so, as goes the leader, so goes the church. That's a frightening phrase for me. (laughs) As goes the leader, so goes the church. And if the leaders aren't emotionally healthy, most often neither is the church. For myself, about 18 months ago, I was feeling pretty stressed. And, you know, as I stopped, I'd suddenly begun to, I couldn't work out what my emotions were. Normally, I'm fairly good emotionally, and I was like, oh, it's this. And I was like, I am a jumble. I do not know what's going on. I just feel weird all of the time. (laughs) Sometimes it's just like, it's just this mess, and sometimes feeling anger, sometimes feeling other things. And so it was almost like my instrument panel was going, "Eh, eh, 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 eh." you need to to take notice. Now, what often happens at this point is we push it down and we carry on. We're like, let's just push through. Do you know what? If that starts happening, we have to stop and go, what is it that's going on? I had to stop and go, what is going on? Why am I feeling this way? What is some of the deeper stuff in life? And one of the reasons I took a sabbatical uh, over the summer, which is just taking a bit of time out, really, to renew and to restore my soul, we did this for my family, is because I actually wanted to look at this stuff and go, what's going on in my life? I want to be healthy before the Lord. I cannot lead you well if I'm not healthy. I just can't. You know, I get up trying to preach a talk and it's like, I'm not from the Lord. You know, that puts you in a, a difficult place. And so I was like, actually, I need to sort this. For me, in my own life, it was actually some, some of the stuff around rest. It was learning to rest well, that actually in the demands of, of people, it's easy to keep going on and on and on and on and on. There is always something else that needs doing. But actually, the Lord had to teach me what it is what it means to rest and to stop and to rest deeply and to restore myself in him and to know that that's all right and to not feel guilty. Guilt is a very powerful emotion. It's a very driving emotion. It can drive you. Some of you, actually, as I'm even talking about guilt, you're like, well, maybe that's the thing that's driving me. Guilt can drive you really hard. But then sometimes you have to stop that. And as I recognized that before the Lord and I sat before the Lord and he was like, you are driven by guilt. I was like, wow, that is a revelation to my life then suddenly knowing that, that that's one of the primary emotions that moves my life, enables me to go, okay, well, that's the case. 
then I need to put some things in place around that and I need to do some things. I tell you that only really to share that each one of us will have a journey and it's different for all of us. But identifying that emotion meant I could begin to put some things in place. If I didn't know what was going on, I would have just carried on. And you know what? If you carry on and you carry on and you carry on and you don't sort it out, generally it ends up in a bad place. In Philippians 4, 4 to 9, we have a picture in the scriptures of what emotional health looks like. It's an amazing passage. Do you know what? The Bible didn't use the language of emotional health. (laughs) You're like, it doesn't really talk about it. Well, it doesn't talk about it like that, but this is what it looks like to be emotionally fully alive. This passage mixes spiritual and emotional maturity brilliantly together. Paul Crutchley is going to be looking at this next week. It's going to be, it'll probably be almost a bit of a continuation of what I'm talking about this week. This is my last point, by the way, just in case you're like, wow, has he got another 10 toys? Stay with me. I'm just going to read the passage. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Isn't that a challenge, just that verse? Let your gentleness be evident to all. Is that evident in your life? The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I love that little thing. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. Can you turn around and say that to other people? Whatever you've learned from me, received from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Do you know, in in this passage, we see the peace that guards us. We're all desperate for peace. Rest for the soul. We talked about it as well with my soul. We sang it this evening. As you were singing that song, did you mean it? You know, it's no, it is well with my soul. It's like this refrain, isn't it? Sometimes we sing these things and it's almost into that moment that we're almost declaring something in faith, I think. It has to be, because it's not always well, but sometimes we can praise and say, God, that's the reality of where I want to stand, that it, it is well with my soul. That song was written in the midst of enormous trauma. If you look back at the story of that song, it's very profound. But the word that the apostle Paul uses for guard was used of military detachment in Paul's day. Paul in prison was under a guard of soldiers. And the apostle Paul pictures our minds as being like a citadel, a fortress, a castle that is under siege by a variety of enemies. There are things coming against our minds all the time. Have you ever felt like your mind and your heart are under assault? Unwanted thoughts are intruding into your mind. God's not going to take care of you. You're on your own. God doesn't love you. God doesn't hear your prayers. It doesn't matter what you do. Nothing can ever turn things around in your marriage, in your family, in your life. Have you ever felt unwanted thoughts intruding into your mind? Or unwanted worries and fears intruding into your heart? In the Bible, our minds and our hearts are portrayed as being constantly under attack. Attacked. 
under siege by the lies of the enemy, by the lies of this world about what matters, about what works and doesn't work, lies generated by our own brokenness and messed upness and sinfulness. And Paul says that the peace of God will be like a regiment of soldiers constantly on patrol to protect your mind, to protect your heart from being overwhelmed by anxious thinking. It's powerful. It's always helpful for us to remember that the peace which surrounds us and protects us is none other than the peace of God. It is God who is on patrol and protecting us. When you're thinking about your mind, just picture the Lord patrolling. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're ever going to go through, you can have a peace that passes understanding. That's what this passage is saying, and that's why sometimes we have to look at these passages and we have to sit in them until we begin to grasp what it's talking about. God, what is it that you're talking about? Lord, I am desperate for this peace that passes understanding. I want to grasp it. No matter what you're going through, you can be emotionally alive. That is my belief. You might be thinking, Do you know what, I believe in Jesus. I've, I've had Jesus come into my heart and my life, but I don't experience the peace, the emotional wholeness and contentment that the Bible seems to be promising here in Philippians 4 verse 7. Well, Philippians 4 verse 7 is embedded into a text that tells us that these promises are only experienced based upon something else. The something else is a series of commands. The Bible tells us that if we want to enjoy the promises, we've got to obey the commands. The prerequisites of becoming emotionally alive. These are the commands. A command to rejoice, a command not to be anxious, a command to pray with thanksgiving, and a command to think about certain things. Four commands, and it would make a great sermon. But I'm not going to preach it tonight. The point that I'm trying to make is that commands are addressed to our wills, that part of our being that is our chooser. And here's the final principle that I want to talk about in finishing tonight. I want to finish with this. How we feel is tied to whether we believe we can choose. At the heart of it is, do we stand in power or do we stand in as a victim? Despite the abundance of things that are beyond our human control, the Word of God, the Bible speaks about our wills and promises us that with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, we can choose to obey God's commands, that peace is available. That's what it's saying. And to to illustrate this, I want to tell a story about a guy called Viktor Frankl. And he's a Jewish psychiatrist in a concentration camp under the Nazis. And at the concentration camp, he lived in the most terrible, awful conditions. Conditions that none of us can imagine, enduring even for a day. He was forced to bury his friends. He was forced to watch brutal beatings. He was forced to see people head off to the gas chambers. Viktor Frankl had almost no control over any aspect of his life, including whether he lived or died whether he ate or starved. The Germans took away all his property. They took away his family. They took away his vocation. So in such a place, under such horrible circumstances, Viktor Frankl began to explore whether it's possible to hold on to his humanity. Were the Germans capable of not only imprisoning him physically, but were they capable of taking away his God-given humanity? And here's what Frankl says in the classic book, Man's Search for Meaning. He says this, Man can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom and independent mind, even under terrible conditions of psychic and physical stress. In the middle of the concentration camp, I can remember men walking through huts, 
comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. There may have been just a few of these men, but they offered proof to me that everything can be taken away from a man but one thing. I call it the last of the human freedoms, the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. To choose one's way. Every hour, Frankel wrote, there are choices to be made. Choices about whether to comfort another person or not. Choices about whether to share food or not. Frankel said that even though the conditions such as a lack of sleep, insufficient food, mental stress, would suggest that all the inmates were bound to react in a certain way, in the final analysis, a person can determine what kind of human being they are going to be. What kind of man are you going to be, Frankel would ask. What kind of woman do you want to be? As the liberating power of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection has kind of moved to the margins of society and the edge of people's thinking, what psychologists call the locus of control, the feeling that with God's help I can choose, the feeling that I have control over how I respond is beginning to wane. And I just want to add this thought so that you're not confused about what I'm saying. I am not suggesting... That if you have, for example, become an addict, that you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography, that you can just choose to stop. Nor am I saying that those of you who labor under the burden of a mental illness can just, be, um, can just choose to be freed from that mental illness. So does this power to choose have no revel- re- relevance sorry, if you have an addiction or if you have a mental illness? Does this power to choose only, our response only work for those who are healthy, those who are addiction-free, namely none of us? We all have our own little addictions. The power to choose applies to everyone. Becoming emotionally alive is available to everyone. For those of us who are addicted, for those of us who struggle with mental illnesses, we can still choose. Maybe we can't choose to become free of the addiction or to stop the obsessive thinking, but there is a choice that all of us can make. We can choose to be honest about our problems with a trustworthy person and not keep hiding. We can choose to not lie about what's going on in our lives. We can choose to get help, to grab hold of the lifeline that the Lord may be throwing us. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. How we feel is tied to whether we believe that we can choose. I believe that every single one of us can make a choice in this area of our life. I believe that we have to make a choice in this area of our life. In the book, it talks about three different types of people. It talks about people that are infants, people that are adolescents, and people that are adults. You know what? You can be a very, very old person who is completely immature in the way that they deal with everything. They are like a child in the way that they respond. Or you can be like an adolescent, or you can be like an adult. I think what the Lord's saying is he wants us to move into maturity. I want you to grow up before you grow old. And there is no shortcut to this. It's not just come up the front, we'll pray for you, and you're going to be emotionally mature. That's why people don't like it. This is a journey that you start, whereby you say, God, you are welcome to every part of my heart and soul, and I want to grow into this. I want to grow up before I grow old. One last thing before I finish. We're actually running a course, or it's a small group in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. For some of you, some stuff's going to have come up. While I'm speaking, you're like, oh, how do I? Do you know what? It's just a tool. We have different tools on this walk. It might be really helpful for you. I'd encourage you to sign up for that. For others of you, we actually have something called Sozo in the church, which is whereby we, um, we pray for people. And often it's the lies in their life 
the things that they believe about God that are kind of keeping them held down. And sometimes we just pray for people in order that he would break those lies over their life. So there's just a couple of things. But I'd love you to, to join us in this journey in order that this church would be a healthy church. Why don't we stand?